Welcome to Season 2 of Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. In Season 1 of Grain IQ, we covered the basics of grain marketing. Season 2 dives deeper into the grain marketing concepts that we covered in Season 1, so if you haven't listened to that, I'd invite you to start there. Now, with all the information you can use to make a grain marketing plan, what should you prioritize? Ultimately, that decision is up to you and what works best for your operation. In the last two episodes, we spent time exploring how to use USDA reports in your grain marketing plan. Well, now this week, we're doing just the opposite. Darren Newsom of Darren Newsom Analysis says he does not use USDA reports when making grain marketing decisions. Today, we'll learn his perspective on those reports and explore the tools that he uses to make grain marketing decisions. Uh, Darren, first of all, uh, if you would, a little bit of background about you and, and your connection to commodity trading, first of all. Yeah, okay, Chad. It goes back over 30 years now. Uh, I've started I started working in elevators, uh, you know, local elevators and so on, you know, went on to become uh, a commodity broker studying, you know, trends and patterns and, you know, orders and how markets move. Uh, then, you know, went on into grain merchandising, wanted to kind of see the whole thing. Uh, so then over time, uh, then I became senior analyst at a, an ag media company uh, here in Nebraska. And then, uh, you know, after a while, went on, became, uh, you know, moved into my own business. So I've been a little bit of everything from trader and broker, merchandiser, uh, consultant, you name it. I've been in part of it over the last 30 odd years. Just big picture, you know, broad idea from a farmer perspective. Why is it important to understand what is happening in the markets, or at least try and understand what is happening in the markets and how it impacts what's going on on individual farms? Yeah, it's an important question, Chad. And what we have to remember is that we we really, you know, from a producer point of view, from you know, from a merchandiser point of view, you have to throw out about 99% of everything you hear. Uh, because if you try to retain it, if you try to combine it all and make sense, you get stuck. You can't make any decision. So there's just too much. So what I've tried to do is throw out as much of it as possible and basically just focus on market structure. You know, we want to know what the real fundamentals are. We want to know what the investment side of the markets are doing. Those are the two keys. And once we put those together, once we narrow it down to those two things, we can get a better picture of the market and then we can get a better picture of our local market. Maybe not the national and global market. Maybe that's not important to us, but what is important is our is our local market. And we can certainly see that as well. So we kind of brought you on as a, a naysayer of USDA reports, and we're going to talk about why in just a moment, because in a previous episode, we talked about a lot about USDA reports and, and the different things that come out at different times of the year. I guess from your perspective, is there any value in USDA reports or why why are they of no value to a farmer, do you think? See, you answered my question for me, Jad. Uh, there is no value to USDA reports. All they do is add a few moments of, of chaos. Um, let's just, I mean, the easiest way to put it is they're basically just guesses, and anyone can make a guess. USDA presumably and arguably uses archaic ways of measuring and coming up with, with their guesses that are so far outdated. They don't even use their own other branches data to make their guesses. So 
you know, there, there's no value to them whatsoever. And as we look at the way markets have evolved, if we look at what's happened, you know, with the automated trade, with algorithm driven trade, with the, the you know untold billions of dollars that are in commodities right now, they're using up to the minute, up to the second data, you know, it doesn't matter if it's weather data, production data, whatever it might be, that data is out there and these investment companies are using it. Investment companies set the trend of the markets. So we don't necessarily have to know what the situation was three, four, six, eight weeks ago, which is what USDA specializes in. But what we want to know is what the traders believe the situation to be. How are they reacting? How are they positioning themselves? And that's all that matters. We don't need to know the numbers. The numbers are just a way of keeping score in a game with no rules, just an imaginary game. We don't need to know the actual score. What we need to know is how both sides are approaching, how how the uh, investment traders are approaching, and how the commercial traders are positioning themselves. That tells us everything we need to know about real market fundamentals. Okay, we're going to talk about those two things a little bit more in depth in just a moment. But I I kind of have a I hope it's not a a backhanded question, but it's a, it's like well, so if if the numbers don't mean anything, uh, how has USDA gotten away with so many reports in the year? You know, because we we think about prospective mm-hmm. plantings, we think about weekly crop progress reports. They do (laughs) quarterly stocks. They do a WASDI every month. They're putting out a lot of information. How is it not worth anything? Well, they're keeping a lot of people employed, aren't they? I mean, mean, let's face it. If we didn't have all of those reports, all those fictitious, all those made-up imaginary numbers, there'd be a lot of people out looking for jobs, looking for a job in some sort of area where you know, maybe their resume calls, maybe the job calls for uh, being able to make up, you know, imaginary numbers. That's really all it's about. Do we need all of that make-believe data? Absolutely not, because we can see fundamentals absolutely every day. You mentioned crop progress and crop condition reports. Those things are those things are completely fictitious. I like to call them the Kardashians of uh, of USDA reports. They have no meaning whatsoever. They have no value whatsoever. Uh, and I've pointed that out in, in the various numbers of, of pieces that I've written over the years, uh, most notably the last uh, the last couple of weeks because the questions come up again. But they have no value. They have no meaning whatsoever. As far as the monthly supply and demand, you know, let, let's face it. What what we see in this last one, they went back in soybeans. They went back two years and changed uh, and they changed the demand to where they dropped residual demand and they moved it into negative territory to adjust two years ago ending stocks and nobody even questioned it. Basically, we have these reports because in my opinion, the CME likes trade volume. We don't necessarily need these reports, but CME likes the trade volume that they generate, even if it's only for a few minutes. And, you know, Chad, you and I have both been in the news industry for a long time. Ag media, ag news in general needs these reports or they have a lot of empty pages, a lot of empty time, a lot of empty space to fill without these numbers. And so there's really no purpose other than trade, trying to get people to trade and filling space. Would you say that the the information that's contained in some of these reports, are we able to get that real time elsewhere so that we know what's happening right now? Yeah. You and I can look at the market at any time, doesn't matter day or night, any time of the day, any time of the night, and we can see what real fundamentals are. We can see what the investment side of the markets are doing. 
We don't need made up numbers. Basically, these are misleading. You know, we talked about, you know, how producers and, and merchandisers and everything can be just swamped with information. Well, now imagine being swamped with bad information, information that's misleading. When all you have to do is look at the markets themselves and you've got up, you know, you've got exact, you've got exact information of what the situation really is. And we can do that at any time. What about private analysts? You know, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've, I've got a group of uh, people that I market grain for, and I think there's enough mm-hmm. of them that if I survey them, get an idea of what's going on in the country, do those private analysts, do those private estimates have any value beyond the paper that they're written on? Yeah, you know, I've I've always thought that, you know, this part of the industry could be privatized. And when we start talking about private analysts, then we get down to, okay, how many of them are playing the pin the tail on the donkey with USDA reports? Because those may not necessarily be the same numbers that they're sending out to their clients. Let's say, let's say, you know, research group A has a number of large global investment companies uh, that, re- that rely on them for up to the minute, up to the second uh, data, fundamental data. Do you think they're going to jeopardize those quite profitable relationships for that research by playing part of the by putting their actual numbers in in the pin the tail on the donkey game? Absolutely not. So, you know, I I do think there is value in, in the private side of this because, you know, we've seen technology move forward. We know many of these research companies are using the very latest in technology to get readings on such things as weather and crop, you know, actual crop conditions and, and what production may actually be and these sorts of things. And it's not outdated and it's not antiquated, but they're being paid for it. And then we can see how both commercial and non-commercial traders who do buy, who do subscribe to those services, we can see how they're positioning themselves. So in a way, we're seeing the numbers without knowing the numbers. And quite frankly, we don't need to know the actual numbers. We just need to know, you know, what's the overall opinion. I guess that's the uh, the chunk that's negative about this particular podcast. Let's go back and talk mm-hmm. about those two things that you said. We need to boil it down to two things that are mm-hmm. elements of our marketing plan. What are those two things, Darren? Yeah, the two things are fund activity or investment activity and, you know, the, the real fundamentals and engage the fund activity. All we got to do is look at trend. And I'm not talking about doing a lot of you know, intricate technical analysis. Just, all we got to do is look at price direction over time. How are the markets moving? If they're moving up, that generally tells us that investment money is moving back into the market. That's as, that's as easy as it goes. So if we look at a day, I go like last, last Friday or whatever it might be, we saw, you know, markets closing higher. That tells us that uh, that money was coming back into the market, that the funds were buying. Now, as far as as far as the commercial side or the actual real fundamentals of a market, all we have to do lo- is look at the futures spreads. That's the price difference between the futures contracts themselves. And it doesn't matter what market we're looking at. We can be talking about crude oil, natural gas, light, lean hogs, live cattle, corn, soybeans, wheat. It doesn't matter. The idea is generally the same. We have to apply some, you know, some different rules for different markets, but the idea is generally the same. The future spreads tell us how the commercial side is positioning themselves, whether or not they believe the situation to be bullish, bearish, or otherwise. And, you know, they're using their, you know, the information that they gather from their clients 
and they're positioning themselves accordingly. And so that's all we've got to read. So if we see these markets with very little carry, like grain markets with very little carry, or even inverted markets where nearby contracts are higher priced than deferreds, we know the situation is bullish. We know there isn't enough supply to cover demand or it continues to tighten. And that's what tells us we're in a very tight supply and demand situation. If we want to look at our local situation, then all we got to do is look at basis. Is our basis stronger or weaker than it normally is? If it's stronger, again, we're looking at a tight local supply and demand situation. If the basis is weaker, we're looking at a situation where possibly we've got enough supply to meet demand locally. Doesn't necessarily have to tie exactly to the, to the national situation, but locally our situation can be a little bit better than what the national is. Let's break those two apart a little bit, and maybe we can start mm -hmm. by doing some definitions. First of all, uh, you mentioned uh, fund activity. Well, who are the funds? How do you define who yeah. are the funds? You know, basically, the way I like to look at it is the difference between funds and fundamentals is a mental thing. And if you take the words apart, that makes it much more sense if you see it written rather than said. But really, the funds are the global investment companies. I mean, they're all over the world. You know, and commodities since 2005 have become this, this huge investment opportunity. And you know, so it's basically everyone, what we used to call spec traders in the market. I believe it's a little bit bigger than that. It's not just the day traders. It's not just those where long-term trade might have been a week. Uh, but these are actual traders, actual investment groups who are looking to ride commodities long term. It's evolved over time. And again, a lot of it goes back uh, to the early 2000s uh, when all of a sudden commodities became popular and they've stayed popular for the most part since. And then you said, too, that fundamentals, if you had to describe mm -hmm. or, or define what are fundamentals, Darren? Fundamentals are basically everything that can possibly change the supply and demand situation of the market. And this is weather, this is geopolitics, this is, you know, this is war somewhere, this is a volcano eruption, this is whatever, whatever you can possibly imagine. And there's no way of tracking and accounting for all of it. That's where chaos theory comes in. So to understand the commercial side of the market that, that basically is, you know, where the commercials are those traders who are actively involved in the underlying cash market, they have to position themselves. They have to protect themselves against the moves that the funds or the non-commercial side makes. And so they do that through spreads. They do that through hedges. They do that through basis. And so, you know, if we understand those very simple strategies, then we can get a good read. We can get a good idea of, of what the commercials view or how the commercial side views long-term fundamentals. You've said a couple of terms uh, just here over the last couple of minutes. Again, we want to make sure we know what they are. So let's, let's mm -hmm. define nearby futures. What are nearby futures? Mm -hmm. What are deferred futures? All right, nearbys, you know, if we look at the, if we look at, say, a quote screen here today, we're going to see, you know, say for corn, uh, we're going to see that there's a September contract. Well, the September corn contract's one of those hybrid things, doesn't know if it's old crop, doesn't know if it's new crop. So we don't really have to worry about it all that much. So if we're thinking only of new crop, starts off with the December contract. So that would be the nearby new crop contract. Then the deferred issues are those that follow it. We're talking about the March, the May, the July. And then again, that takes us out to the next September 2023 contract, which is again, hybrid. So when I'm talking about corn, I'm talking about the nearby new crop, I'm talking about December issue. All the deferreds are, the, are everything that comes after that. The same thing is said then for soybeans, right? We just start with mm -hmm. a different month, right? Right. You know, in, in soybeans, we have this little idiosyncrasy of, of ridiculousness of the August and September contracts. 
basically worthless. Uh, even my time as a merchandiser, I would basically just jump from a July issue uh, to the November to set my basis. The August and September are lightly traded, very low volume, uh, very low open interest. So, you know, when we start talking about the nearby uh, soybean futures contract, it's the you know new crop, it, it's November. And then we've got a bunch of other contracts. We've got the January, March, May, and then we're out to the July again, all of a sudden. But again, we don't really have to worry about the August and September when we're looking at new crop future spreads because we just don't really concern ourselves with those. And then one other one, uh, basis. So we've mentioned that a couple of times, mm-hmm. too. Define what is basis, Darren. This takes me back. I was doing a, a long time ago, I was doing a meeting with a, with a grain merchandiser uh, at a local elevator, and she looked confused. And she, when the question came from the crowd, you know, what is basis? Uh, she looked at me and said, can you define this for me? And I said, oh, yeah, certainly. Basis is very simple. It's the cornerstone of everything else that happens in these markets. Basis is the difference between cash and futures. That's all it is. And so if the cash market is stronger than normal in relation to futures, then you've got a, then you've got a bullish cash situation. You've got a bullish supply and demand situation, usually locally more than national. This is where we, this is where we look at locally. Uh, and then, you know, if, if it's weaker than what it usually is, then locally you have more available supply than you do, uh, than, than you do demand. And that tends to weaken basis a bit. So basis, point blank, price difference between cash and futures. And somewhat piggybacking off of, the, off of that, too. We know that there are things that can influence the futures price, move it up and down, right? Mm-hmm. There are not the same things, but there are things that influence basis, too, right? That is correct. Yeah. You know, you don't see a lot of investment influence in the basis market. or I shouldn't say direct influence in the basis market because investors, fund traders, they're going to be they're going to be sticking with the futures markets. Most of them are, you know, nearby futures. They only have to be in the nearby. So you get your you know, you get your rolls from when they have to roll from nearby to a deferred contract uh, monthly or quarterly or whatever it might be. Uh, But in the basis market, you do have factors that will just move basis and you know it will be directly tied to the cash market itself and again a lot of that is local supply and demand but some of it and we've seen this in the past we've seen this when you know the futures markets just get carried away with non-commercial activity all the money starts rushing in and we see this huge break between you know we've got futures markets screaming higher and fundamentals not supporting it so you've got what i like to call rubber band disposition you've got you've got this market being stretched between the divergence between these two groups. And usually basis, you know, is going to stay weak in such a situation because merchandisers are not going to pay what, you know, the funds are pushing the futures market to. And then ultimately the market breaks like a rubber band that's been stretched, the market's going to break. When it does, it returns to its base, which just oddly enough is basis. So that's when you usually see a collapse in the futures market when the basis and when the fut- and when the cash market and the intrinsic value of the market just simply did not support the move. This other definition I want to make sure we talk about is the spreads, because this is a, mm-hmm. a part of what you were talking about. Uh, these are things that we have to watch. So before we talk about what the spreads are showing us and how we can react to that, define the spreads as it relates to a futures okay. market. Yeah, when we look at a futures market, we see, you know, we have all these different contracts. We can see, you know, again, if we're just looking at new crop corn, we've got D's to March, March to May, and so on. We've got all these contracts. What we're looking at with spreads is the price difference between those contracts. So let's just say, theoretically, we've got D's corn at 610 and March at 620. 
So you have what's called a 10 cent carry because the March is higher priced than the D. So you've got a 10 cent carry in that in that first in that first spread, that first new crop spread. Is that bullish? Is it bearish? That's where we have to do some calculating. It gets a little more complicated there because you've got to figure out what you know the total cost of holding that that those bushels in storage, you know, what the cost of storage and interest would be for a set period of time. I broke this down a long time ago and, you know, when I was a merchandiser and I made it as simple as possible. Anything, if, if the total cost of what the spread was covering, if the total cost of carry that the spread was covering was 33% or less, I considered it bullish. If it was 67% or more, it means that it was bearish. Everything else in between was neutral. So what we've got right now is, yes, there's carry in, the, in both corn and soybean new crop spreads, but it's a weak carry. In other words, the commercial traders saying, OK, they'll pay you a little bit not to sell right up front, but they still need both supplies about as soon as they come in off the combine. So they're not willing to pay you a lot to keep it off the market. They want it. They want it. They want it relatively soon. So they're not willing to pay you much in the market. They're pushing, they're pushing the nearby uh, futures more. So that's telling us that at least right now, unless something changes, we're still looking at a tight situation for both new crop markets of corn and soybeans. Now let's go through a couple of the scenarios that you talked about. Let's say mm-hmm. that there is a, a a large amount of carry from one to the next to the mm-hmm. next, uh, and maybe in soybeans, uh, maybe the the value of the next contract out is fifty cents more than it is right now. What is that telling you? If there's a large spread, the next contract out is a higher value than what it is today, or the the contract mm-hmm. in front of that. What is that indicating? Yeah, if, you know, if, again, if, if it's a small carry, then it's still telling you the commercial side needs the supplies relatively short term. But if there's a large carry, if there's a 50, 60 cent carry, as you said, in soybeans, or we can look out, we can look out to Chicago wheat right now, softened winter wheat, and we see, I think there's something like a 15, maybe 18 cent carry right now between the DEES and March contract. Uh, and that at one point that was pushing like 75, 80% calculated full commercial carry. What that's saying is, the commercial side of the market is paying you. They're paying you with the higher price deferred to not sell it up front. They don't need the supplies short term. So hold it. Have it hedged against the deferred contracts. It's a bearish supply and demand situation. I've argued with economists about, about this factor for years. It's a bearish supply and demand situation when you have that much carry. And so, what again, the, the, the commercial side, the merchandisers just saying we don't need it short term. Sell it to us longer term, take, you know, and we'll pay you to hold it in storage. You know, and if you've got it hedged, that works in your favor. Okay, so we've talked about a, a strong carry. We've talked about a weak carry. Now, you mentioned it too. There is the situation that's happened sometimes where there's a higher value in a close up month versus a deferred yeah. month. So that's a negative carry. What does a negative carry mean? Yeah, that's an inverse uh, for those of us in the Midwest. And if you want to get fancy uh, when you talk to some New York folks, that's called backwardation in the New York markets. Uh, but what that's saying is basically you're out of supplies. The merchandisers, the commercial traders are out of supplies. We've seen it in corn. We've seen it in soybeans here in the 2021-22 marketing year. We've had tight supplies of everything except Chicago wheat. Uh, so we've seen these inverses in the markets. And again, what it tells us is, merchandisers are pushing nearby price. They're trying to get supplies to meet demand uh, and the supplies just aren't there. They're being held so tightly, no one's willing to sell. And that's what an inverse tells us. And when we see these things, we know that uh, the supply and demand is still bullish 
and further out we go. I mean, we can look at crude oil and it's an inverted or a backwardated market almost out as far as you want to go. We know supply and demand is tight for, for the foreseeable future. Okay, so you've just laid something out, and I think you've changed a little bit of thinking in my head even, because it's not so much that the value of the commodity far out is worth less. It's more so that the commodity is worth more now. It has more to do with what's going on now than it does so much further in the future, huh? That is exactly right, and that is the point that so many economists just struggle with. When we look at these spreads, it's what is the value now? Yes, I know we're looking at a futures market and we're looking at future spreads and future spreads tell us what the value, you know, they show us what the prices are presumably further out. But it's the relationship of the nearby contract to the deferreds that tell us what the situation is right now. And as we if we carry that out and we continue to see inverses through, say, the May-July corn spread, then you know, okay, the merchandisers who are also trying to buy for next summer, next late spring and summer, they're running into the same situation. So they're pushing that May versus the July contract. So when you see an inverse, it's telling you what the supply situation is, what the price situation is for that immediate contract, uh, be it the Dece versus March or May versus July. It just tells you the commercial side, the merchandisers are expecting a continued tight supply and demand situation. Darren, do you think it is important? uh, Should you look at spreads just on the contracts that are next to each other? Or is there value in looking at spreads, you know, from November to March or November to July? No, I I see value in looking at the, you know, we we can do both. You know, if we want, if if we have a normal selling time, uh, time frame in mind. So let's say we usually sell in January or February. Well, we'd be looking at the March, May spread, but we don't want to lose sight of what is the fundamentals of the market as a whole. And there we want to look, say, in corn at the Ds to July. That tells us the entire picture for the marketing year. In soybeans, it would be from Nov to July. You know, if we combine all of those prices and lay them out on one chart, it's called a forward curve. Uh, and so that you can also get a lot of information by looking at those combined spreads, looking at those forward curves. Uh, and, and they, you know, I was just looking at uh, bean oil earlier today, and it's got, you know, it's got a strong inverted uh, forward curve again for as far out as you want to look. So bean oil is supposed to, you know, supposedly looking uh, fundamentally bullish for as long far out as we want to go. So yes, there's a lot of value in looking at the immediate spreads, looking at individual spreads, and looking at you know the, the market as a whole. Is there something about these concepts that we haven't talked about? You know, because I, I think you could get into the weeds pretty far, but we just yeah. want to make sure that the main points of the concept are described. Is there is there something that we haven't talked about? Do you think that's really important that should be added to this? Now, we just really need to hammer home that you know USDA's numbers are, are purely guesses, and we have to take them as that. But the market, on the other hand, shows us reality. And yes, it could be, you know, it could be complicated. We can make it as complicated as we want to. Uh, and, and again, we, we could hold a whole series just talking about how to read fundamentals. Uh, but the point is, we can see the fundamentals. We can see real fundamentals any time of any day. And all it is is just simply looking at the markets, tell, you know, reading what they're telling us. And when we do that, we don't have to get caught up in all the nonsense of, you know, what you know, is this going to be 171? Is it going to be 175? Is it going to be 169? Because quite frankly, the market doesn't care. The market knows if it's going to be enough or not. And it doesn't matter what, what yield, yield guesses come in to be. 
So the last question I have for you is this. So we've talked about the two things that it boils down to, fund activity and the fundamentals. What mm-hmm. does that mean to the farmer farming the ground that is long in the market because they have commodity to sell? Mm-hmm. What does this mean to that farmer? It means that they can have a better understanding. They don't have to follow the crowd. They can they can understand the market better. And when it comes to marketing, you know, it changes, it could change their strategies rather than saying, okay, you know, USDA is going to say this, so I need to do this. But on the other hand, you know, we can look out and say, okay, wait a minute. You know, the spreads are telling us this, you know, basis is telling us this. We've got trends telling us, you know, funds are coming in the market. So maybe we want to think for ourselves and do our own strategies in here. We want to want to take a different approach to this. And we've seen it, you know, particularly over the last few years, again, when when supplies have really tightened, you know, it's changed the way we have to approach marketing. Uh, And so, you know, really, it, it makes it easier. Uh, you get you don't get caught up in the in the nonsense of the of the monthly or weekly or quarterly game that likes to be played. Uh, you can just sit back and, and you can take a more you know, a far more professional approach to it, uh, a more business like approach to it, where, again, you're just not trying to to outguess the pin the tail on the donkey. As far as time commitment, you know, it sounds like this isn't something that you have to look at every single day, but it, you do have to. It's more than once a year. Right. It's uh, you do have to kind of keep up on it periodically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you can look at it however often or however infrequently you want to. I mean, if you want, when you come in at the end of the day, if you just want to take a quick look and you can say, okay, you know, these corn, these corn gained six cents today and March gained five cents. Okay. We had some buying coming from both non-commercial commercial traders, turn off the screen, go have dinner, whatever it might be. It's all that quickly. And I do that as, as in part of my presentation, I take anybody with, uh, you know, who doesn't know about a particular market and I show them a day's close and I say, okay, explain this to me. What happened? And in a, just a few seconds, in just a couple minutes, they can do it. It's that simple. It, 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 it doesn't take, you know, you know, this reporter out there saying, oh, you know, uh, corn only moved because USDA said this. That's nonsense. The market does what it needs to do. It's a price, you know, it's a price determination system. And all we got to do is when we look at the prices, when we look at how the different contracts move with it, you know, against each other, we can put all the pieces together very quickly. All right. For folks that would like to follow along with what you do, uh, you know, and and kind of uh, brush up more on some of these concepts. And again, if they want to follow along with you, how do they do that? Easiest way is to go to DarrenNewsom.com. That's the website we've got set up for all of our services. And you go up to the service menu page and just click on uh, click on that and you can sign up for a seven day free trial. There you can see everything I talk about, what I look at, what I don't look at. Uh, and, you know, you can see if it agrees with you or see if it's something you're interested in. We can certainly go from there. So just go to DarrenNewsom.com. This is Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Grain IQ is hosted by Chad Moyer and produced by Rebel Saklocha. It is written and edited by Alex Wojcicki. Our project manager is Bryce Duskett. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.